Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. We're going to only stop at verses uh, 22 to 25, but we're just going to read the whole passage, which we started last time I preached, which was two weeks ago. So we're going to read Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Here's what the author of Hebrews said. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest or the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way which he, Christ, consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Again, think, let that phrase just sink in your heart and in your mind and in your soul. If you forget everything we talk about today, just remember these few words. Amen? He who promised is faithful. Just keep reminding yourself of that. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaken the assembly um, of ourselves together, as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day is approaching. Amen? All right. So <clears throat> this is week 43 uh, in the book of Hebrews, and we have seen that we just remind us, the book of Hebrews is written to Christians who were persecuted so much that they thought about abandoning Christianity and going back to Judaism. So <clears throat> the author of Hebrews wrote that book to them to encourage them never to go back to Judaism and to stick with Christ and stick with Christianity. He spent from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 10, verse 18, arguing theology, the supremacy of Christ, that the New Testament is far more superior than the Old Testament. Christ is far more superior than all the elements of the Old Testament. And if Christ is superior, don't leave what is superior to, do, to go to what is inferior. And then from chapter 10, verse 19, which we started last time I, I preached here, till the end of the book, he's pretty much giving them practical tips. How can you live your life in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is superior than all the elements of the Old Testament. We started uh, with this passage, his practical application of the supremacy of Christ, which we see here from verse 19 to verse 25. This passage splits naturally to like two main points, verse 19 and verse 20 and verse 21. We talked about this last time. He's discussing that privileges of the believers. And then from verse 22 to verse 25, he's discussing the responsibilities of the believers. This whole passage, in this passage, the author of Hebrews is trying to exhort us to uh, approach the presence of God, to come close to God. That's the point of these five, six verses. If you remember, what did we say last time about the privilege of the believers? We have two things that advantage us and that help us and kind of encourage us to come closer to God. You guys remember any of that two weeks ago? We have two things, verse uh, 19, 20, and 21. Let's look at it together. Therefore, brethren, having 
boldness, number one, to enter into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. That's our first privilege. We have the blood by which we have free access to the very presence of God. This new way of approaching God is living and it has been consecrated to us, has been opened up, dedicated for us. How? By the tearing of the body of Christ on the cross. So that's our first privilege, the blood of Jesus. And what is our second privilege? Verse 21. Perfect. We have such a great high priest over the house of God. Jesus, our high priest in the presence of God, making intercessions for us, which gives us boldness to come into the presence of God, knowing that Jesus is there to help us out. So because we have these two amazing privileges, now the author of Hebrews is moving on to the responsibilities that we have. And he gives us three responsibilities. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And verse 24, and let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. I absolutely love how David McLeod, uh, one of the commentators, put it. In verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23. Uh, two, let us draw near. That's our responsibility toward God, right? Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. This is your responsibility toward yourself, self-worth. And then uh, let us consider one another. This is our responsibility toward that church. So you have a responsibility toward God, toward yourself, and toward your fellow believers. Amen? Amen. Let's start with our first responsibility. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The author of Hebrews mentioned to us before, in chapter 4 actually, if you remember, he encouraged us to draw near in chapter 4 verse 16. He worded it this way. Let us continue to draw near to the throne of grace with frank boldness. What did you guys think he was talking about there in, in chapter 4, verse 16? We talked about that. What is the throne of grace? What is he saying here? Let us come close to the throne of grace. He's talking about prayer, right? He's saying, let us pray. And when you go to the prayer, go to the presence of God in prayer, go in with boldness. You have that free access because of the blood of Jesus. So because of that, we can kind of imagine that here in verse 22, Prayer, coming close to God in prayer, is one of the main things that the author of Hebrews is talking about, right? Because of how he gave us a background back in chapter 4. So here the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to come close to God, obviously in worship, in praise, in reading the scripture, but mainly, maybe, he's thinking about prayer. Let's pray. Let's spend time coming close to God in prayer. Because we already have the blood of Jesus and our high priest who can help us come close to God in that way. Amen? Now, when you enter into the presence of God in whatever format, maybe particularly prayer, you should enter with full assurance of faith. You should have absolute 100% confidence when you come into the presence of God, when you draw near to God. Why? Because he already mentioned we have two main privileges, right? Because of the blood of Jesus and because of Jesus being our high priest, because of who Jesus is and who, what he has done for us, we can have full assurance of faith. Amen? Mm -hmm. So that full assurance of faith has nothing to do with how good you are. You're with me? Yeah. 
or how well you have performed last week, right? That you were able to read seven chapters in the Bible or 55 chapters of the Bible, it doesn't matter. Because that assurance, that, that, that confidence doesn't come from who you are or what you have done. It comes from who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Amen? Amen. And now he said, let's go close our conscience being sprinkled and our bodies being washed. And the Greek here has the idea of uh, perfect tense. That is something that took place in the past, but the results are still ongoing. You guys are with me? Something like this. I have bought a car. That's a reference to something you have done in the past. You already purchased the car, right? But you keep on enjoying the benefit of having this car. You're with me? That's pretty much the same idea here. Our bodies has been washed once upon a time. Our conscience has been sprinkled once upon a time. But we still keep on reaping the benefits of these events that took past, that took place in the past. Amen? Now, I love how William Lane translated that part. He said this, our hearts sprinkled, not from an evil conscience, from a burdened conscience. That just, I love that wording. How many of us here would agree that an evil or a burdened conscience is an absolute hindrance of coming close to God in prayer or in the word or even coming to church to worship with your fellow believers, right? Maybe some people are not with us today because they have that burdened conscience. I am just too bad to go to church. I'm too evil to come to the presence of God. I can't even pray because I have messed it up so much, right? We have seen the example of that when, when we talked about Adam and Eve. Remember, we talked about this a long time ago. Um, how Adam and Eve, when their eyes were opened and they saw that they're naked, they're conscious within them, stirred by the guilt and the shame that sin has generated, what is the first thing they do? They run away from the presence of God. God is coming looking for them and they're running from him. Why? Because of that heavy, burdened, conscious that is driving them away from the presence of God. Amen? Amen? But the good news is God has already provided the answer for our evil and burdened conscience. Amen? We talked about this before. We talked about it when we talked about the power of the blood of Jesus and we talked about it when we discussed Hebrews 9.14. Here is what the author of Hebrews said in the past. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, without guilt to God, it will, that blood will purge your conscience from dead works to do what? To serve the living God. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is this. The blood of Jesus is far more powerful than every sin that we have committed, every shame we feel, every guilt we have. And if we choose to put our trust in the efficiency of the blood of Jesus instead of our condition, we can have that full confidence that we always can enter into the presence of God. And even our burdened conscience can be sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now, he's saying this, let's go into the presence of God. Let's draw close to God in the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is he talking about here? Obviously, these two ideas here are linked, right? The, 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 the heart being sprinkled from evil conscience, the bodies being washed with pure water. He's talking about something similar. He's repeating pretty much the same idea, or at least these two ideas are linked. Many commentators say that 
our bodies being washed with pure water is a reference to that baptism. When you get baptized, your body's getting washed with that water, and because of what that baptism symbolizes, that's how you can have confidence to draw near to God. I'm just not sure if I can agree with that myself. And here is why I'm, I'm having problem with it uh, as a reference to the baptism. In the context here, the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage his readers to come close to God, right? And he's giving them motivations, reasons not to be hesitant of coming close to God. One of these reasons is that the blood of Jesus can cleanse your conscience from evil works, right? So if you trust in that blood of Jesus, then you can come close to God with assurance and not worry about that guilt and the burden that is in, in your conscience. But I don't know about believers who would think to themselves, you know what, I got baptized 20 years ago, maybe I need to come close to God today. I don't think we think this way, do we? So I don't, the, the reason why I'm not buying this is because I feel like baptism is important. I'm not taking it that out of the way. But I personally don't see it as a motivation for you and me to come close to God in prayer or anything like that. It's a declaration to the world of the, in, the inner world change that took place in your heart when you committed your life to Christ. You guys are with me? No? Yep. Okay, one person. Good. So that's why I'm having problems with that being a reference to the baptism. So what is it about? What is the author of Hebrews talking about here? I think, again, David McLeod got this one right for me. This is my opinion, not Bible, okay? Um, in, the, in the Old Testament, both twice, in Exodus 29 and in Leviticus 8, in Exodus 29, God gave the commands to Moses how to consecrate Aaron and his children. And we see that the fulfillment of these commands in Leviticus chapter 8, where actually Moses is consecrated Aaron and his children for the ministry and for the service of God. And in the consecration of Aaron and his children, we see both events together. We see the sprinkling of the blood and we see the washing of the water. And as far as I know, I might be off, but as far as I can remember, this is one of the very few, if not the only, incidents where maybe in the cleansing of the leper as, leper as well. But these are the only few incidences where you can see these two things take place in the same time. The blood is sprinkled and the body is washed. So I feel this is more like what the author of Hebrews has in mind here. He's saying because Jesus has died on the cross and has consecrated, sanctified us already to God to be his people, because of what Jesus has accomplished through his blood and through consecrating us, now we can have confidence to enter into the presence of God. Amen? So for me, this is just my opinion again. This is more of a reference to what Jesus has already done for us by bringing us into God's family. Thus, because of what Jesus has done for us, we can have that assurance, that confidence that we can come close into the presence of God. Amen? If you disagree with me, you can be wrong, but I'm not going to, I cannot defend it any further. Amen? So, um, having our conscience being sprinkled and our bodies being washed is probably a reference to the consecration uh, and the, the sanctification that already Jesus has done for us when he died for us on the cross. So the idea here again and again and again, let us draw near to God in prayer or worship or corporate worship or whatever way you come close to God because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done. Amen? And this is our responsibility toward God. Now, what is our responsibility, our job toward yourself? 
he says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So he's repeating the same idea again, without wavering, to emphasize the importance of, let us hold fast without wavering the confession of our hope. For he who promised is faithful. Now, the author of Hebrews telling his reader, hope against hope. Think about it this way. These people were persecuted so much that they even wanted to leave Christianity altogether and go back to Judaism, right? Mm -hmm. So these people kind of like who appear to losing every hope they might have that God will actually deliver them from this persecution, right? They're getting to the point that, you know what, this is not working. Let's just give up on the whole thing and go back to Judaism, right? This is where they're at. And he's saying here, I want you to hope against hope. Even though everything around you tells you that there is no hope, I still want you to hold fast to the confession of this hope. Amen? And not only, and the reason why you hold fast unto your hope is not because, again, of how efficient you are or how good you are, but because of two things. He has promised and he is faithful. Amen? Amen. He has promised and he is faithful. So let's just think about that for a minute. Number one, he has promised. Now, who is the word, the word he here? What does it refer to? God, right? Now, this is not, the author of Hebrews is not telling them, I have promised you, right? When I was with you and I taught you about God and Christianity, I gave you certain promises, right? It's saying your hope should be built only on the words that God himself has uttered, not your pastor, not your Bible teacher, amen? That we have a lot of problem in the church today because people put their hope in the word of their pastor, not in the word of God. You guys are with me? And then you get disappointed. Well, you can trust man as much as you want, but don't blame God when it doesn't happen. Amen? Point number two. If you don't know the scripture, if you don't know the Bible, then you don't know the promise of God, and then you will not have hope. You guys are with me? That takes us to the importance of knowing the Bible for yourself, not just from what the pastor teaching you. You need to know God's word for yourself because in it is the promises of God and that's the only thing that you should trust in and have hope in. It is what God has said about himself, about what he does in the scripture. Amen? If you don't know the Bible, you're in deep trouble because you don't know the promises of God. Amen? So the point is, read your Bible. Amen? So number one, you need to trust in the promises of only what God has said. Number two, you need to know his word so you can know his promise. Now, Katrina told me this one time uh, about one teacher. I'm not sure where that comes from, but uh, this person said this. Many people trust God for things that he has not promised. And then they get disappointed when God doesn't give it to them. You guys are with me? And that's a problem. If you, you can trust God all what you want for things he didn't promise, but don't blame him if it doesn't work. You guys are with me? You only trust God for what he has promised, not what you think he has promised. You guys are with me? How do you know what he has promised for, versus what you think he has promised? You need to know the Bible. Amen? Not somebody's commentary on the Bible. You need to know the Bible for yourself. Amen? Let me just show you a couple of things here that I was thinking about. God never promised as a Christian that you will not first, that you will escape persecution, right? Having trouble in this world is, is a promise actually from Christ to us, amen? Mm -hmm. 
If you are in trouble and you feel like you're being persecuted for the sake of Jesus or you're suffering for Christ's name or you're in need or want because of who Jesus is, you don't have necessarily to trust God that he will deliver you from that, right? It's part of the promise that he gave us that we will suffer for the sake of his name, right? Obviously, God can choose to deliver us and we ask that he deliver us. I'm not taking that out. I'm just saying at the end of the day, we need to know what he has promised us. He never promised that we, you will live healthy, that you will live wealthy, and that everything you need to do, God has provided you so you can live your comfortable suburban, suburban Christian 21st century life in America. This is not a promise from God to you. Amen? But God has promised that even if we go through trouble, he'll always be with us. Amen? And lo, I am always with you. That's what he promised. Amen? God never promised that he will supply your wants, but he promised that he will supply all your needs. And that's a big difference. If you want something, unless God gives you a clear word from him that he's going to provide it to you, then you don't have to promise to trust God for that because he didn't promise that he will supply your wants. He promised, though, that you will never need anything. Amen? That all your needs will be supplied, not just for you, but also for your household. This can be a tough one, but I personally don't see scripture or promises from God that every believer will be healed from every sickness and disease. I don't see promises for that. God heals absolutely. We believe in the healing and we believe that God heals Christians and heals non-believers and it's my heart that we will see a move of God in healing like a lot of healings take place in our churches. But it's, there's no promise in the scripture that if you're a believer, you will live a healthy life till the day you die. Amen? God can heal. Amen, Justina? God healed her and from cancer, and praise God for that. And God's still here. But he, when he does that, it's out of his goodness and out of his mercy, not as necessarily promise that he gave us, that every believer will be healed. Amen? However, he has promised you that if you trust him, if you seek him, for somebody who's not a Christian or not, who's not a believer, this person will ultimately come to know Jesus. This is a promise from him. Amen? We know that salvation is his will, is his heart, and if you ask him for that promise to be fulfilled, he will come through to you for that promise. Amen? Amen. These people might get saved even after you die, but the promise will be fulfilled. You guys are with me? He who promised. You need to know the promises of God because without knowing his promises, we're going to get ourselves in so much trouble. Amen? But number two, he who promised is faithful. He's faithful. Amen? Amen? Again, let's think about this group of people who are going through persecution and about to give up on anything. And it's amazing to me that he would say, he who promised is faithful. It would make more sense to me if the author of Hebrews would have told them, for he who promised is mighty. Right? Because if he said, for he who promises mighty, yes, you know, he'll get us out of this trouble. Yes, the Roman Empire is too much, but God is mightier than the Roman Empire. But he didn't say, for he who promised is mighty. He said, he who promised is faithful. Right? Again, because God has promised his people in the, the Hebrews or the church in general, 
He promised persecution. He promised that we might even die for his sake. But at the end of the day, whether in this life or whether in the life after, he promised that we are safe and secure in his hand. Amen? And particularly here, maybe the author of Hebrews is drawing their attention to that hope that he has already mentioned to them before over and over, particularly in chapter 6, when he's encouraging them to hope in the life after, into entering into the presence of God after everything is said and done. Because Jesus, our high priest, has already entered as our forerunner. Amen? So the author of Hebrews saying is what the author of Hebrews is saying is this. Even if you are persecuted and die for the sake of Jesus, know that he has promised us that we are secure, that we have eternal life. And he who promised is faithful. His word will come to pass, even though you don't see it happening with your own eyes. Amen? I love how William Lane like commented on that passage. I'm just going to read it verbatim because it's just so good. I, I cannot explain it any better than this. Here's what the William Lane wrote. He said this, the writer here, that's the author of Hebrews here, puts the emphasis upon the utter reliability of God as set forth before in chapter 6. His promise is absolutely certain because he already told us he who promised God is impossible for him to lie. He will keep faith with the community. Now look at this. The factor of uncertainty lies exclusively within the community of believers, right? The one who's wavering and going back and forth is not God. It's the Christians of that community, right? And their tendency to waver in their commitment to the gospel, which he keeps telling them, hold fast unto the faith. It is the responsibility of the community or the writer's friend or the Hebrews to act upon the consistency of God by steadfastly holding unto their belief without wavering. Just so amazing. Wording is so powerful. Amen? The problem is not in God. The problem is in you and me. God will never waver in his promise, but the problem is that you and me so many times waver either in our faithfulness or our consistency with God. Amen? But let us hold fast the confession of our hope. So we talked about, let us draw near. This is our responsibility toward God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. This is your responsibility toward yourself. Now let's close with the responsibility that we have toward one another. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaken the assemblies of one another together uh, as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another as, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That's the day of the coming of Christ. Now, he's saying this. Our responsibilities as, as a corporate believers in this church is to stir one another for two things, for love and good works. Think about that. If you're asking, what should I do for my brothers and sisters in the same church? That's your responsibility, to stir them up, to encourage them up, to love better, and to do good work better. Amen? That's what we need to do for each other. Encourage one another to love better and do better works. And then he's encouraging them now by saying, this responsibility can be done by two things. Number one, by not forsaking the assemblies, the assembly of the brethren. And number two, by exhorting one another. Amen? Now, if you look at that passage, 
You're going to see in verse 22, he's saying, let us draw near to God with the full assurance of what? Now, verse 22, full assurance of faith, right? Verse 23, he said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And here he's talking about stirring one another up in love, faith, hope, and love, right? Isn't that what Paul talked about in, in, in Corinthians and also the author of Hebrews mentioned these three things before in Hebrews 6, 10 to 12. Look at this. For God is not unjust to forget your work and the, what? Love, which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitator of those who through faith uh, um, and practice and patience inherit that promise. So faith, hope and love. That's the, the, the cornerstone of Christianity. That's our job. If you forget about everything you have to do, what should I do toward God? What should I do toward each other? Forget all of that. It's these three words. Faith, hope and love. Amen? Now, the author of Hebrews is encouraging them. Let us do our job toward one another, not forsaking the assemblies of ourselves together as in the manner of some. Now, I don't know. To say what you say about the church. I probably will agree with you in, in, in a lot of the things you say. The church, the, is there a lot of hypocrites in the church? Yes, I am one of them. Amen. Is there, uh, the, can the church be malfunctioned? Absolutely. Is there a lot of people who mess up in the church? Oh, yes, absolutely. No question. Do we sometimes get it wrong? Oh, many times we get it wrong. Say what you want about the church. You're probably right. Having said that, you should never forsake the assembly of the brethren. Amen. We might be a malfunctioned family. Nevertheless, we still are family. We stick together. Amen. And you should never leave your church for any reason unless obviously, you know, not teaching God's word or pulling you away from God or anything like that. But you need to stick with your church. Don't forsake the assembly of the brethren. And then the positive side is exhorting one another as even so as much more as you see that day is approaching. We need to exhort one another, encourage one another, build one another. And that even happens or a more intensive way. The more we know that Jesus is coming soon, since this is all going to be done, let's even do it even harder and more stronger because Jesus is coming soon. Let me just say this. Earlier he told them this. Let's hold fast to the confession of our hope. Why? Because he who promised is... Faithful, right? What the author of Hebrews is saying this, when the day approached, the day when Jesus comes from heaven, and we all be with him in heaven, that day is the day that we are hoping for, right? He said, let's hold fast to that hope that the day will come. Amen? And on that day, every promise God has given us will come to pass, and we'll know for sure that he who promised is faithful. So, that day approaching serves in so many ways to encourage us to draw near to God, to hold fast to the confession of our hope, and to consider one another. Jesus is coming soon. Amen? None of the stuff that you see in this world, none of the stuff that keeps you busy will last forever. Amen? The things going to last forever is this, when you draw near to God, when you hold fast to the confession of your hope, and finally, when you consider one another. Amen? 
Let me close with that thought. The wording that he used here, let us not forsake the assembling of one another. Very interesting. This Greek word was used only one more time in the New Testament. It was used in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. When Paul was talking about the gathering of the saints to Christ when he comes to take us home. Amen? That's the exact same word that the author of Hebrews is using here. So while the author of Hebrews is encouraging his readers to, to stick together as a church, as a group of believers in worshiping God, he's still also reminding them of the ultimate gathering of the saints when Jesus will come to take us back to heaven. It is that day that is approaching that the author of Hebrews is still pointing to. Amen? Let us, three things, let us draw near. What else should we do? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And finally, let us consider one another. Let me just close with this thought. <clears throat> last week, I, the last time I preached, I closed it by saying, whose responsibility, whose job is it to do these things? Is it God or is it you and me? Who's supposed to draw near? Who's supposed to hold fast? Who's supposed to consider one another? Is it God's work in us or our work? Our responsibility, right? God has provided the means for us to do all of this. When Jesus died on the cross, when he shed his blood. But this is your job. This is your responsibility. Amen? And I hate to break it to you, but God is not going to do that for you. You have to do that for God. Amen? You have to do your part. You have to draw near. You have to stick to the commitment that you have made to Christ. And you have to help building up his church. Amen? Right, it's God's work in us, but doesn't take our responsibilities. What I'm trying to say is this. God is not going to drag you out of bed in the morning, bend you down on your knees so you can pray. It's not going to happen, right? He can create an urging inside of you to pray, but if you're not going to act on it on your own free will, it's just not going to happen. You know what I mean? So that's what I'm trying to say. Obviously, God is the one who's working in us, but you have to willingly choose to do these acts. Amen? All right, let's close our eyes and pray.